Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 213. In this episode, we're talking about trauma in the Hebrew Bible with Dr. Alexiana Fry. Dr. Alexiana Fry is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Copenhagen, and she's the author of Trauma Talks in the Hebrew Bible. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Brandon Halbert, the Reverend Dr. Nathaniel Warren, and me, Dr. Madison Pierce. So, Brandon, Nate, what struck you about our conversation? For me, as we have been listening to some of the uh, episodes that have come before, um, and trying to get find the boundaries of what we mean by trauma and how it's used in our culture and so on. Um, for me, she further problematized what we are meaning, what we are talking about <clears throat> when we are talking about trauma, and then from extending from that the complexity of the of the biblical understanding of these kinds of themes. Um, and so, in a good way, right? This, we're sort of doing this thing where we're learning what it is, and then sort of dismantling that and then learning what it is again uh she was very helpful in the dismantling process in a, in a very very interesting and positive way uh what i love about uh when chatting with alexiana is that she makes uh what could be a very very difficult uh and depressing topic uh she makes it i don't want to say enjoyable but like she makes it uh so easy to understand and so uh approachable probably better word, approachable uh, for those who are unfamiliar with it. And, and the way that she just walked us through uh, a number of uh, stories in the Hebrew Bible, some uh, uh, prophetic texts and some poetic texts as well, I found her explanations very helpful uh, for those who have not thought about uh, approaching the Hebrew Bible uh, or the Old Testament uh, through a lens of trauma. Yeah, absolutely. And wow, the complexity that she brought um, was really useful. I think this kind of goes along with what each of you have said. She did. She problematized various things. She offered us nuance that wasn't available, but she also walked through these topics in ways that um, were so sensitive and, dare I say, faithful um, to the people in the conversation and the topics themselves. And so, I mean, um, you know, she helps us to walk through grounding. Um, She notes the ways that we experience these various um, readings and also the um, ways that we can really even exploit the people, te- the people's telling their stories within Hebrew Bible. And so, oh, I really enjoyed this and and um, found it to be a really helpful um, discussion of some really horrifying texts. But as you say, Brandon, in ways that are uh, sensitive and uh, engaging, I suppose. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Also, if you appreciate what we do here at The Two Cities, please consider joining our Patreon community to support our work and receive bonus content. Look for us on Patreon, follow us on X, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Alexiana Fry. Alexiana, thank you so much for joining us. 
No, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, so today we're going to talk to you a little bit about really sort of trauma in Hebrew Bible, which is an incredibly broad topic. But could you tell us a little bit about some of your work in that topic and maybe even how you got interested in working on something like <laughs> trauma? <laughs> oh, uh, great multiple questions. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll start backwards there um, with how I kind of fell into this work. Um, honestly, the short answer to how I fell into this work is I got lucky. Um, when I was figuring out what I wanted to do with my life and my Hebrew Bible professor at my seminary uh, really was excited about the prospect of me continuing my education. I had just finished my MDiv. I did not want to go back to school, even though I liked school. And so I applied to one school just to kind of get him off my case um, and ended up getting accepted. And they assign you a supervisor. And my supervisor ended up being Juliana Claussens at Stellenbosch. And her thing is trauma. Her thing is trauma readings. And so in the initial stages of my continued education, uh, I was still trying to figure out, okay, great. I got accepted. Now, what am I going to write on? What am I going to be doing work on? What am I even interested in? And after I sent her a long list of random et cetera's that maybe I was excited about, she then sent over a few of her own pieces involving trauma and it just clicked. Mm -hmm. And personally, I think it clicked because of my own understandings now of the things I have experienced and the things I was watching others experience in um, different circles. Mm -hmm. um, so not only did choosing trauma help me make sense of myself and the world around me, um, understanding trauma also, uh, this is going to sound horrible. It made the Bible more fun. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, it, it made, it made the Bible more human and mm -hmm. we, we know the Bible to be human. Right. Um, but I think in my own upbringing, it was always overemphasized how divine it was. Mm -hmm. And yet to also consider the divine and trauma was, was another layer I had not unpacked. And so it was both personal and also exciting and also just fun. Um, my own therapist is like, you're, you're a little drawn to things that are pretty inherently disgusting. And I'm like, yep, yep, there's, there's that. <laughs> Let's not get into the psychology behind it, please. Um, but, uh, there, there was something for me that really unlocked once I realized that that was an opportunity. Mm. Um, and once I realized there was an opportunity, I began researching and reading the work that had been done in the field. And for reference, um, SBL, the big guys, um, they started a, a hermeneutics of trauma unit in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it could be earlier than that, maybe 2013. So it's not, I mean, even if it's 2013, it's um, 
still still a baby. It's a baby unit. Um, it's 10 years old. It's not yet going to middle school. And so for me, what it felt like was happening was an opportunity to be a part of something that was still in process and still being developed. And it was exciting to go, okay, I could be a part of furthering this conversation. Um, as it pertains to the actual Hebrew Bible and seeing elements of trauma, it felt like there were certain aspects that felt very clear. Um, we are constantly seeing aspects of war, of uh, sexual violence, of exile, of um, irregular migration. We are seeing examples of things that currently in our current context, we actively call trauma. For me, trying to discern whether or not they would have understood it as trauma was another conversation. And of course, then there's the big old A question of, is this anachronistic, right? Um, and that is a question that I will hold in both hands and say, yeah, and no, and I don't know. <laughs> and the more I do research, the more I don't have an answer. Um but as it pertains to what we can see, we obviously see elements that could be traumatic events or processes, but we also see just basic, basic examples of the fight, flight, freeze, fawn, and flop. We see them. Um, and it also felt like a miss that we weren't discussing that this could be because of the situation and because of lizard brain that goes into let's protect ourselves hmm. and that's very normal and and human what was interesting for me in reading more on trauma literature was the ways in which that we don't just see the what they call the emotional response or even the somatic or embodied responses to trauma but we also see how in current depictions of trauma literature there are actual literary aspects. Um, some of them are constant repetition, fragmentation, which fragmentation can be tricky in our own readings, right? Is it fragmented or is it redacted or both? Um, <laughs> can I call it fragmented or is this actually redacted? Um, or is it intentionally fragmented by the redactor? Um, <laughs> all I'm saying here is that there are copious amounts of opportunity in reading through this lens. And I see it everywhere to the point where it's borderline pathological. And I think that could be a problem, at least as we discuss trauma more largely in our world and how that is being received. But that's another conversation for another day. Um, but all in all, to answer your questions by saying trauma just made sense to me. And it's ironic because trauma in and of itself is a process by which your brain is going, this event, this process, this structure does not make sense to my body, to these frameworks. It And it shouldn't be integrated. And yet here it is. So it is making sense of what, what is senseless. And trauma, ironically, helped me make sense of all the senseless. Thanks so much for that, uh, walking us through some of those. Uh, thanks so much for walking us through uh, how you got into this uh, uh, fascinating topic. Um, I can imagine some listeners uh, would love to know some details 
uh, about some stories that you found that you had read one way and then you approached it through this lens of trauma and it just opened up the story in a whole new way. Could you just share a few examples of those stories from the Hebrew Bible? Absolutely. And it's fun because uh, Brandon and I connected because of our shared interest in Judges. Um, so he has he has another take and, and a lovely take. And I find it fascinating that we can maintain multiple interpretations at the same time. That may be a little bit of a spicy take, but it is my spicy take. And I am spicy. Um, <laughs> for instance, uh, I actually read texts like Judges 19, um, which depicts a very horrific situation. And I don't know how explicit you would like me to be right now. Uh, because of the work I was doing and recognizing that and sharing some of this material, I could be actually secondarily traumatizing people mm. um, and um, have instances where I am trained and do uh, my own work in trauma-informed, uh, both somatic body movements. Uh, I do have training for that as well as uh, just trauma-informed teaching and learning. Um Content warnings are fantastic. And what is important even in content warnings is to remind people that they don't have to flee. They can, they can ground their bodies. We can, we can sit with what's super uncomfortable and attend to ourselves even as we receive that. And so even as I share these pieces, if people would find it helpful to tap bilaterally on your, on your legs or on your face, um, it is a weird thing to do because we are socialized to not take care of ourselves. But um, yeah, yeah, feel free to move your bodies as you feel these things or even to just feel yourself connected to the ground, to the earth, to your chair. It's, it's good to know that you are safe and supported in this space as you hear things that are not safe. And so Judges 19 is a text um, where there is a uh, contested term after contested term after contested term, right? So there is a pilagesh, um, which was traditionally translated as concubine. Some people are advocating for secondary wife, which can be also tricky in this context because the Levite doesn't mention having a regular wife. <laughs> so is she secondary? What does that actually entail? And a lot of people then We'll just divulge that she is not in a great, great situation. She is not um, given great status in this in this relationship. Um, she's Onaz, which is another contested term, right? She acts actively. And um, we don't know whether that means she is unfaithful to her spouse or if being unfaithful means having sexual relations with somebody else that is not her spouse, or if it just means she is leaving for her father's house. Um, it could be either. It could be both. Um, but we don't do victim blaming. So there's that. Um, <laughs> uh, so that was a spoiler alert. Um, through the process of multiple migrations, both to the father's house, then to Gibeah, um, multiple scenes of hospitality. We also have scenes of inhospitality. And it's also asking the question, hospitality for whom in both of these settings? Um, 
the Levite is taken care of in every single circumstance. Um, but in the end, the Pilagesh, the secondary wife, ends up being thrown out uh, to the wicked men of Gibeah who pound at the door and ask to know the Levite. So they ask to uh, sexually violate the Levite, which should be understood as more of a dominance thing and less so something lustful. Um, if they're lusting for something, it's power. It's not, um, oh, yeah, it's not that. Um, so they instead accept the body as a as an exchange for instead of the Levite. And they gang rape her throughout the night and leave her in the morning. And the scene that Judges has for us is that her hands reach the threshold of the door. She doesn't quite make it inside. She's not fully outside. And yet she is neither. She is liminal and stuck in that liminal space. We also don't know if she's dead at this point in the Masoretic text. The Septuagint loves to clean all of this up a little bit and make sure that there is a clear-cut bad guy, um, which because of the way I think I would prefer that, but it is left ambiguous. <laughs> um, the Levite comes out after his nice sleep um, and says to the Pelagesh, get up, let's go. Um, the text actually changes uh, the way in which he is viewed. Instead, it is not the husband anymore. It is the master. Um, she does not respond. Um, either she is unconscious or she is literally dead. He picks her up, brings her on the donkey, takes her back home and dismembers her into 12 pieces, sending these body pieces off to the 12 tribes of Israel, um, which is in fact a summons to war. Um, I actually read this through the lens of trauma, not just because the text itself is inherently traumatic, because it is. On face level, we call it for what it is. This is horrifying. Um, on another level, taking some of these pieces of trauma and trauma literature, we see some other aspects that could be at play. Um, tons of repetition in here. Lots of ambiguity. There's a resistance to closure, especially with the ambiguity. Um, you don't get to know fully. Um, there's some fragmentation. There are, there are multiple instances in which we are struggling to make sense of what really happened. On another level, people who need to make sense of their trauma when they feel like they understand a little bit of their trauma, they narrate. Storytelling and telling one's testimony, testifying, witnessing to what has happened to them happens through words. It happens through writing. It happens in that way. However, if the situation feels still too close at hand, um, symbolization and symbolizing things in different ways um, is a way to create distance from the event while still describing the event. It creates a um, layer of safety for people who still feel unsafe, but feel the need to process what occurred. And so what I have done in my dissertation, and I don't know if it's convincing or not, but it was convincing enough to get me through. And a good dissertation is a done dissertation. Can I get an amen? Um, <laughs> uh, 
I actually see um, the the woman, the concubine, the Pilagesh, um, in this marital relationship with the Levite as um, I see the Pilagesh as a symbol for the social body of Israel and her gang rape uh, being a symbol of war and her dismemberment being a symbol of her exile. Um, her body will never be put back together again, right? It is one, that's not doable, but two, it's dismembered into diaspora. Um, what what do we do with that? Uh, I'm starting to hint already at some of these migratory pieces that I, I feel like are important here. Um, granted, you could ask me a bunch of questions and it would completely undo my theory here. Uh, <laughs> and yet... Uh, it's interesting because I can also read it as a counter narrative to sort of say that if the Israelites envisioned themselves as a pillagesh, as a secondary wife to whom, uh, whether that Levite be representative of God, of oh, so many other things, right? We could discuss the civil wars that were ensuing at the same time and um, the nations around them that they may be intermarried with. But also this is using explicitly insider language. Um, and so that's another problem. I find it interesting that it could be seen as a narrative that essentially says we didn't deserve this God. Um, it could be read against the grain that really just says our treatment was unfair. We were already in a exploitative position and we were exchanged for what? And what does it mean to remember her is another conversation. So that is, uh, that is a, an example. Uh, I also look at some of the marriage metaphors in a similar way, especially with in light of the exile. But again, I, I tend to, um, <laughs> maybe, maybe read more trauma into the text than is necessary. But of course, I also have to keep a position and a job. So I'll just keep writing about this until until somebody says stop. One thing that you, you brought up is that trauma does, isn't only about the kind of the narrative content of a story, but also is involved in its production. Is yes. that standing behind the text is a writer that has experienced trauma. That and may be traumatized. Yes. And that, and that comes forward in, in the writing. And so we, and in the narrative that we're, that we experience that we're reading, that can be really tough sometimes, Judge 19 being one of the worst, uh, I mm -hmm. think, um, is that we're not only experiencing a really kind of hard to understand story or a, a difficult to accept story, but also we're experiencing uh, a very personalized trauma yeah. of an ancient writer. Um, and is that, is that kind of what you're, you're getting at in your, in your own writing? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes. There's, there's like layers of trauma here. Right. And so, um, you know, as a, a very much avowed feminist, I have problem with using women's bodies to represent national bodies for a myriad of reasons. And yet who am I to some extent, right? We, we still have to hold traumatized people to ethics. And yet if this is how they feel, they should be able to describe themselves in that way. Um, Again, there is a, a bit of ethics that still needs to be involved, right? You don't get just to, just to go, 
oh, because they're the victim, they get to do X, Y, and Z, right? There's still, there's still elements at which we can critique and call, but to also give space for that at the same time to, to hold both is important. Um, again, I could talk about <laughs> using the woman's body as a symbol all day long, <laughs> again, in the context of migration and, uh, and so on and so forth too. Um, even though nations are not a thing in this context, but, uh, ethnic groups are, but anyway. Thank you so much, Alexiana. And yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. If we think about, you know, some of the other allegories that are used in scripture, I mean, gosh, Hosea, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I hate that book. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's scripture and all of those things, but I'm, I feel anger when I think about the depiction of that woman and yes. the role that it's supposed to play in our faith and spirituality mm-hmm. and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. and wish it had been done differently. And there yeah. are so many stories like that in Hebrew Bible in particular, but all throughout scripture. Yes. yes. 100%. And you know, even my rereading of maybe they're saying that God shouldn't have treated them like this, so on and so forth. It can be wishful thinking, right? And it's important to hold multiple contexts at the same time. And I think it's lovely that we can look at Jose and go, this is messed up. This is inappropriate. This is spousal abuse. Do they understand that as spousal abuse? What, self-blame is also a very potent and powerful way in which victimized people can feel in control in the midst of no control. Um, so that's another aspect here. And yet, what do we do historically when women are depicted as the bad, uh, the ugly, the the sinner, um, the epitome of evil, right? There have been many people who have seen the ways in which women are treated in scripture and feel that because they can't say that the text is bad or that the text is depicting bad things, um, because they have not been taught that they can critique it and still find faith and goodness from it, they end up inscribing them on other women's bodies. Um, And so the trauma perpetuates itself. And that is sad and scary and still happening. And, and and I think this is exactly what happens with Judges 19 is that mm-hmm. uh, because because of its place as sacred scripture, um, we it, it, readers through the centuries have adopted a, a particular stance to it, which is, well, it, it's here. So this must all be good. And therefore, mm-hmm. the author must be saying, isn't that isn't that great? Or, you know, look what she got or, you know, there, yeah, she got what she deserved. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And if only she hadn't cheated on her husband, then none of this would have, you know a lot of really terrible thing, terrible types uh-huh. of reading. And so uh-huh. I think it's really helpful that your, your type of reading is, is leaning into the trauma, but still allowing it to say something positive at the end without it being, I don't think it's wishful thinking, um, that it is, is, is doing some critical self-reflection. Uh, yeah. And it's not simply just approving of everything that is being depicted uh, in the text. And I think that's, yes. that's really helpful. And I think it's helpful for, for our listeners, for, for, for any readers of, of sacred scripture, that there's, there's generally speaking, always another way to read a text. Uh, Please. And, <laughs> and, um, just because something's depicted, 
uh, in that way doesn't mean that the text necessarily approves uh, of of its kind of ethical uh, reappropriation for today. Yeah, yeah, and even if it is endorsing that behavior in that time, right? What do we do with that? And how do we teach people that just because it's in the Bible doesn't make it good? Um, and that we can still learn something. Um, I think that's crucial for faith communities today. So I, I want to go back to a just comment that you said kind of way at the beginning of our episode this time. Mm-hmm. Um, impressed it with saying that I'm typically suspicious of West, the kind of Western hubris of taking 21st century usages of languages, concepts and words and imposing them mm-hmm. on texts and authors from the past. Yeah. Um, where these people and societies would never have thought about this kind of term or this experience in this way. Mm-hmm. So if, I, I guess my first question is, from a historical perspective, mm-hmm. what is trauma in Hebrew scriptures? And um, how does it differ from our understanding of it today? Mm-hmm. Because just in previous episodes, we've heard a lot of definitions <laughs> of trauma from like uh, trauma is not what happens to us it happens within us um mm-hmm. also that's a Peter Levine quote okay yeah <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and but also um some suspicion from contemporary thinkers about the language of yes. healing so yes. can you do a little bit of the uh philology <laughs> if you will of um of the term how it's used and how it's conceptually uh Utilized in Yeah, that's the fun part about all this is that there isn't really a word until Greek. Um, And then there is the Greek word trauma, uh, (laughs) which literally means wound. Um, And because um, if I'm just going to spoil it right here and now, um, I do not care for the Greek language. I purposely love uh, the Hebrew Bible because I prefer the Hebrew Bible language. I prefer Hebrew. I prefer Aramaic. I prefer it. It is pure bias, pure preference. And so there's my philology on, on the word trauma, wound, Greek, done. Um, as far as <laughs> uh, how that shows up in the Hebrew Bible becomes a, another conversation, right? Um, because it doesn't. Um, but neither really does the word rape. Mm-hmm. Neither really mm-hmm. does a lot of words. And yet, just because there weren't words for them doesn't necessarily mean that that's not how they would understand it. And yet, we have to be careful. You are absolutely right. We have to be careful. I wish that there were was Here's what's complicated about that. Here's where I'll, here's where I'll talk about this. So especially as we discuss trauma writ large in our society today. Um and as you have noted, there is a lot of baggage now with it. Um I will absolutely coupon the APA definition of trauma. It is awful. It does not work. It, and actually I could give you a full history lesson on how trauma came to be in the APA. It's fascinating involving, um, you know, anti-war and then the feminists and then the whole, it's a whole story. It's phenomenal and terrible because of course politics are involved. 
Um, when are they not is another question. Um, in effect, one could even say that I am colonizing the text. And that is a danger that I need to be aware of in my work, right? Um, and even as I share openly and with a smile on my face, like, well, publisher perish, but at what cost, right? Am I using with people's bodies, women's bodies specifically in my own work, even though they are long dead to continue to bolster my work? That feels a little unethical and a little sticky. And I'm not really a big fan of that. And so is there a word for trauma in the Hebrew Bible? No. Am I imposing a social scientific method onto the text that may or may not be legitimate? Maybe, maybe. And we really do need to wrestle with that actively. Um, just because trauma is a very sexy concept right now, and it is, there's a reason why people wanted to publish my book. Okay. And it, it's because it has the word trauma in it. Um, people want to read about this right now. It is hot. And because of that, there's also a bit of a backlash. Um, you know, people are like, this happened and it traumatized me. Well, part of that is they don't fully understand what trauma is. We have overused the term to the, to the extent that people don't actually understand. And yet we are a society that hasn't taken trauma seriously, basically ever. Um, and holding both of those things Simultaneously, all of those things we're we're juggling at this point. We're building a, an airplane as we are flying it, proverbially. And so, as an example of trauma in the Hebrew Bible text and not having words, Lamentations is probably the easiest book to just quick stamp and throw a label onto it and go trauma. But if you understand trauma, that might be a little bit more complicated than one thinks, right? And so if we understand trauma as it could be an event, it could be a process, it could be something that's ongoing, um, and the emotional responses, which again, the APA definition focuses in on emotional responses. And we all know that it's mind body. It's, it's also your actual body. Um, if it was just an emotional response, you would not flee the scene of a crime. You would not fight. You would not there are aspects at which your emotional responses must inhabit your body. Um, and that goes for a long, long, long standing Western tradition of divorcing the mind from the body. And that's a fun, fun thing. Anyway, in Lamentations, the, the whole narrative is about mourning the fall of the temple, mourning the fall of Jerusalem. We look at that and we're like, oh, he is so traumatized. However, one could also see what he is doing as a beautiful way to actively grieve, mourn, and heal. Um, and we will come back to that word heal um, because uh, that was made mention and I uh, do not like it uh, personally. Uh, <laughs> grieving and mourning and lamenting and giving voice to those feelings, giving voice to the loss is not necessarily trauma. That is, that is an active adaptation that is appropriate for the circumstances. And so just to help as well um, for hearers, trauma is something, but it is not post-traumatic until it is about a month to six months after said event 
or process or occurrence that happens that creates the trauma, if it persists, those, those fight, flight, freeze, fawn, flop expressions persist for longer than a month than it is post-traumatic because you are supposed to come back. You're supposed to... What happens in the moment of trauma is an adaptation. It is a survival mechanism meant to help you. It's good. It's not bad. It's good. If it persists, it is seen and then as quote unquote maladaptive. Also don't like that word. And uh, <laughs> and is unhelpful for your current reintegration into regular life. Now, we could now talk for a long time about lamentations and collective traumas, how cultural traumas are maintained, how narratives of cultural traumas are created. That's, a, that's another two-hour long conversation. Um, and we see that happen everywhere. And that's fascinating. What I'm trying to emphasize is, is we can, on the surface, look at lamentations and go, trauma, this is bad. Like, so, so sad, so, so bad. Wow, so sad. Sad boy, Jeremiah. And then we can also look at it and go, this is a completely normal response to what's going on. And when we say it's a normal response to what's going on, we don't call it trauma. But that's what it is. We only have bad connotations when it comes to trauma. We are too quick to moralize responses of survival. And in some instances, we should, right? There are instances where we should. And yet, what happens in the body and grieving and feeling things for what they are is an adaptation meant to help you survive, to process the grief, the, the occurrence. It is good. It's good. It's not bad. It's only bad if it persists, right? So there are not words, and yet there are many words. Um, we have to be careful. And yet look at us now. So you've mentioned, uh, we know we've talked a bit about Judges 19, mm -hmm. uh, and we've, you've mentioned lamentations. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think those are, I think for many people, uh, I don't want to say obvious examples, but if those one are were obvious. To try to come, well, if one were to try to come up with trauma in the Bible, probably some, some stories in Judges, lamentations, we might think of some lament psalms, you know, we can think about there, there are certain portions of the text that really do lend itself to helping their trauma really helps us understand the text mm -hmm. in a deeper way. Mm -hmm. um, can you think of or can you give some examples of some uh, some examples that we wouldn't come up with on our own oh, yeah. uh, without your expertise? I know I know you have so many, um, but could you share <laughs> a, a few of those examples uh, with our listeners? Yeah, actually, um, in my book, um, I, I, write, <laughs> I, I <laughs> write about one of those examples um, because I, again, I could write all the boom, boom, boom. What do you want me to write about? But when, what about when it's less obvious? What about, what about considering an author that might be traumatized, but is just writing what seems like a normal narrative? And I actually, um, I actually discuss chapter 24 of Joshua. And it is the famous uh, taking a stand um, from this day, we choose to serve the Lord, right? Um, in this instance, I talk about uh, 
many things, right? Because the first thing that might stand out is, well, did they have a choice, right? Because they're basically being threatened. Either you choose the Lord or I wipe you out of existence. Well, yeah, they still do have a choice. Um, and we need to talk about consent uh, broadly um, as we're talking about it. Again, our society loves to put things in easy binaries. Let's put things in categories that we can easily explain. And you are either this or you're this. But boxes are not that clean cut. Categories are not that clean cut. We cannot essentialize things as much as we want to. And anyway, I will get off that horse. So I discussed first this abst this um, this concept of did the Israelites have a choice, and I go into that. But then I also discuss how there is concepts in communal trauma theory where, for one group of people, this is a narrative by which it is a chosen glory. This is a glory narrative. But for another group of people, that same narrative, if you flip the coin, is a chosen trauma. That is the day we made a decision that we should not have made, essentially, right? And this is the day we pledged everything. We should not have done that. And based on the fact that at the same time, I want to say when this is occurring, there are oak trees that are being specifically mentioned. There are other gods. They are tossing out other gods in this narrative. And yet there's still the oak trees. And they, they're, the narrator is specifically mentioning these trees. In that, I also discuss how um, in, in comparison, there is a, a sociologist that went to the, the sites of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, like in 2020. And of course, since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there have been other nuclear issues in Japan. And so in a lot of places in Japan where the fallout is drastic, they actually have these poles that they have set up that measure um, radiation in the area to inform people around of what happened. And so I actually discuss comparing these aspects of um, so at the site, they, they build an Ebenezer, they build an altar, they build something to remember this moment. Do not cross the Lord. Look at what we did. And I discuss how for some people that can be seen as like, a this is a bolstering moment. This gives me strength in times where I feel like I'm going to disobey. Um, this is something I made a commitment to. And for other people, it's a constant reminder of why did we make this decision? Especially given the fact that narratives of, in Joshua, which were Deuteronomistic, they're nation building, but they're also in the throes of their own anxieties of that age. Um, and so how do we maintain that communities who would have received these texts may have seen the same text differently? How could, for one people, this these stones of remembrance also be attached to memories that are not so positive? Um, what, what collective memory are we talking about? Is this a good memory or a bad memory? And it depends on the collectivities who are receiving them. Um, and so I also discuss um, Confederate memorials 
um, Confederate statues, as well as other memorials that bring honor and the, the different connotations that each of them hold, right? And so what would the Ebenezer stand for in this instance? Well, it depends on who's looking at it, right? It depends on the narratives that that, that group is trying to purport. But again, not every group agrees on the same things. And we also have a, a group of people who are writing these narratives who want certain things. I'm saying the same thing over and over again. All that to say is I do see aspects um, in quote unquote normal areas of the Bible um, that could be seen as trauma literature, but I think it's a little bit more, uh, it's difficult for sure because they're, they're not clearly outward. And even what I just mentioned there as pure conjecture, absolute conjecture, and I'm using stories and um, memories and current context to help me understand what could be occurring in receptive communities. And yet I can't help but try. <laughs> and, and in thinking of even thinking about, uh, you know, stories that, you know, on the surface seem so uh, normal, easy, Whatever. like, you know, I mean, I mean, I think the very classic one is, is just in children's Bibles is just, <laughs> you know, uh, is Noah, right? Where it's like, oh, it's about cute little animals. And you're like, no, those are the only animals that survive. That's not cute. That's really tragic. Um, or, uh, you know, or I think, you know, a really good example is, you know, the story of Ruth, you know, it's like, oh, it's this nice love story. And you're like, oh, but it's actually about, uh, forced migration because of famine. Uh, and then, you know, there, like there's crazy things that are happening, uh, in that story. And I wondered Ooh, if you could so um, much to say about talk, Ruth. <laughs> you could talk about Ruth, but maybe just kind of bring it in because I know another facet of your, of your research is thinking about migration. Uh, mm. it's even because of you that I've, I've changed my language from talking only about the exile, but really seeing the exile as violent forced deportation. Um, mm -hmm. and I think that was very helpful in my own uh, thinking about the subject, but I wonder if you could just share a bit more about, um, about those, uh, themes. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I think we even have to problematize concepts of migration because Oh, well, one of the reasons why we study migration so much now is because the wrong people are migrating into the wrong areas, right? We're trying to control who goes where, so on and so forth. And that's, it's different, but also similar. Granted, it's, it's similar in that when, when Assyria and Persia come onto the scene, it's actually fascinating. I'm doing work in Elephantine right now. Um, based on the Persian powers that be, um, if there was somebody that was sent as a messenger, there was actually um, a letter that was sent with him that showed him, this is how many provisions you are allotted per area, because we need, we, this is where you're supposed to be. Within this amount of time, this is what you're allotted. And um, just places that you're supposed to report to during your migrations. And so it was being controlled similarly, but also obviously differently. Um, I'm going on a rant on a different subject. So I'll come back. <laughs> um, I think we have to problematize the, the connotations that come with migration even. Um, to move is to be human. 
to migrate is to is a very human act. Um, I migrated here to Denmark for my job. I am probably not going to be talked about very much in papers because my my um, migration is not deemed problematic. And in some regards, based on the uh, politics that be here in Denmark, my migration is not problematic because I have a return stamp. Um, and I could talk all day about the politics of migration. Uh, I, I did a lot of work when it came to the language being used and the politics at play around the United States-Mexico border um, for my own dissertation. And so I have a lot to say, but I will not. As it pertains to stories of migration in the Bible as well, I think what we need to point out even as it pertains to the patriarchs, all migrating all the time, they're constantly mobile. Um, you know, although it comes with its own connotations now in the way it's used, the, the fact that, you know, you have Cain who is in the land of Nod, he's wandering. That's his, that's his whole thing. You have, um, my father was a wandering Aramean. Um, as the marker for who this people are. And again, there's connotations in the way that that is being used and has been used since. However, these people saw themselves as inherently mobile while they also saw themselves as being rooted to a place. And I do actually think that diaspora studies helps us understand a lot more of that. Um, what's interesting about current diaspora studies is it came from Jewish diaspora. It came from researching Jewish diaspora. And then of course it became much more broader because they were like, oh, it is happening to other people. Um, surprise. Uh, <laughs> this is everywhere. Um, interestingly enough, diaspora is another one of those terms where now we're calling everything a diaspora and people are like, that's not what it means. And so it's both a broad and narrow thing that we need to like both, I'm not going to say control, but also understand um, and have frameworks for so that we're not, you know, this is not the two cities diaspora uh, <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. And yet some people would call it that um, based on the looseness that is being uh, purported for that. Anyway, movement in the Bible and trauma. What's important when it comes to understanding the ways in which movement is discussed, right? In, in Abraham's narratives, it's not necessarily with negative connotations. It is with promise. It's with hope. And for many migrants, that's, that's what they're drawn to. They're moving because they see hope in the future. They want something better. Um, that is spiritualized and it still is today, um, in connotations of that patriarch, but it's important to see that, right? Um, it's important even in the judges 19 context to notice, okay, where is the movement happening and why? Um, I don't like this term, um, in current migration studies, but, uh, and it's not happening anymore in current migration studies. Um, but it's an old term, but there are push and pull factors to why people move or why people don't move. Um, and 
we need to see push and pull factors as more historical instead of just momentary. Um, we tend to just freeze frame all of these things. And I think even some of the narratives of Ruth and Naomi and um, currently I'm actually doing work in the book of Esther and Ezekiel. And so I'm having loads of fun in these terrible, terrible books because in actuality, what's um, horrible is at first I was like, oh, yay, Esther, that's a fun, lighthearted book. No, no, absolutely not. No. Um, people want to say it's carnivalesque, but I'm scared of carnivals. So let's, <laughs> there's that. Um, and Ezekiel has arguably very similar narratives to Judges 19. So, and interestingly enough, Ezekiel's explicit setting, at least the text is saying the explicit setting is in by the river Kebar, by the canals of Babylon. Um, he is displaced to a place he does not want to be. And yet that marker of having moved and experienced displacement then becomes the marker of the true essentialized group that is supposed to receive promise. The people who remain, which statistically people who are left behind, if they are not, if they're not literally then chained and pulled, which in some instances, because of reliefs that we have seen from Assyria, we do know happened. It is often, literally as the text depicts it, the elites that are moved first. Um, it is people with resources who are moved first. Um, people who are left behind, we're thinking about people who had existed in the ancient context who had disabilities. People who did not have resources to sustain that kind of journey. Um, they would have been left behind. And we know from archaeological things <laughs> that um, these people may have left Jerusalem itself and moved into Benjamin to sort of boost the agriculture and so on and so forth of the time for the empire that be, um, which Brandon, we should talk about this. Let's talk about Benjamin and the way Benjamin is depicted as this character and how that might have everything to do with the ideological conversations about who is allowed to be here in the aftermath of exile. Um, who stayed and why are they not legitimate? Um, who left and why does leaving become then the legitimate marker? We need to recognize that, especially when it is a regular migration, um, migration that is imposed upon people, if something is imposed upon somebody, that is going to be typically a no-no. Um, there is a reason why forced displacement is a um, is a war crime in international contexts. There's a reason. Um, and I actually talked at SBL about the concept of deracination, of literally being uprooted from one's land and placed in another. Um, has a lot of biblical connotations of like the agricultural aspects of migration, as well as seeing God sometimes as the agent of uprooting. What does that do for some of our, our conversation? All of that to say, I also did not answer your question, Brandon. I just added too much to the possibilities of this conversation. 
And again, would people perceive their migration as trauma or not? It, it depends on the collectivity. It depends on the individual. Um, it is subjective, unfortunately. And all these people are dead. So I don't get to interview them and find out if I'm accurately depicting their experience, um, which I, is, you know, on one hand, a loss. And on the other, I'm making papers. So I, I have actually a very pragmatic question for you. Um, and that, that is, that is this, I, I come from a people who have been displaced and victims of yeah. genocide, uh, massacre over the last 150 years. We're experiencing yep. something very, very similar right now. Yes, you um, are. So I'm, I'm actual diaspora. Yes, <laughs> right? you are. To your point with, uh, earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and my, my question, the pragmatic one is this, if I, if I want to say to my, to my family and to others mm -hmm. who experience this kind of thing, where's the place that I can go in scripture, mm -hmm. in the Hebrew scriptures to find a a sense of hope and storytelling and that kind of thing. Where, where can I, where can the very um, pastoral question, where, where can I go to reflect and find hope um, for in this very distinctive and unique context in, yeah. in the scriptures? Yeah. What's interesting about that conversation is I both have an immediate answer and also a follow-up question, right? How, how does one define hope? in those moments and what different communities need different things. For example, if I was to immediately go, okay, I know what hope is. And I think I'm assuming what I think they want or a comfort for them. I'm probably going to go to Jeremiah. I'm going to go to the plant gardens aspect of the Bible. I'm going to go to that place where it says, this is all horrible and this all happened to us and it's real. And yet we're going to make spaces here in Babylon. Um, it is a, oh, Isaiah 40. Is that what that is too? Thanks, Brandon. I avoid Isaiah. It makes me frustrated. <laughs> that, that's the, that's the, the comfort, comfort. Uh, comfort, people. comfort my people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Granted, at the same time, you have comfort, comfort my people. You, great, we could take this example, right? Because then you also have Ezekiel, who um, you won't show this on the podcast. I mean, on anything, but he's essentially doing this. Like, this is this is awful. Um, and to some people, that can be a comfort, right? Just the acknowledgement that other people have experienced this and they hated it is a comfort and a hope that they're not alone in that situation, because especially in situations that are inherently traumatic, which is what you described, they are isolating. They're isolating. And feelings of loneliness only perpetuate the trauma that can compound and persist. Yeah. And there's a thing too, like I've been in situations where I have, uh, usually typically white men, from just being frank, <laughs> who say, Oh man, I hate those Psalms or I really don't understand those Psalms or um, I can't believe in a God who would these Psalms that are like, I want justice and um, my, I want bad things to happen to my enemy. Yes. I want bad. Like I want, I want to see that happen mm -hmm. um, for the experience of uh, yourself or your people. And, yep. and so often in these cases, what I'm hearing these people say like, Oh, I just can't believe in a God that, um, that does this. And like, well, maybe that's the reason I believe in God. <laughs> 
yeah. is to think that there's some sort of cosmic sense, cosmic justice that happens outside of what able I'm able to control in this moment. Yeah. Um, and so it's incredibly frustrating to me to hear those kinds of things like, oh, because those scriptures can be so encouraging to me. Yeah. Justice will be done. Yes. Justice will be done. And, and, but if you don't have an experience of trauma or you don't, if you've always been in positions of power, then, um, that would, that would, I'm just, I can see how that would be incredibly unsettling. Incredibly um, unsettling. And again, it comes back to that conversation that I even discussed in using women's bodies to think with, right? And what are we doing with that? And yet, this is how they understood their experience. Who am I? Uh, and again, if we're going to talk about the aspects and matrices of power, who am I as a white woman who barely left the Midwest for most of her life? Like, who am I to say, well, there's an appropriate way at which you can feel your feelings about that really tough situation. That sounds really hard. Sometimes people need to rage. And do you want to know what's most upsetting about conversations about trauma? There's a uh, really corny quote that we say in trauma-informed spaces. You need to feel it to heal it. You cannot make your way through. If you're feeling rage, suppressing that stuff is not helping. Get it out. Um, and I, again, ironically, I see the biblical authors getting it out. They are putting it all out there. I love that. Again, I love how human these texts are. If there is not a space, and of course, I could get into the whole notion of um, the revenge fantasy and how a lot of survivors feel it. And yet there's also these feelings that may come after of, of more guilt and shame in the aftermath of a revenge fantasy. And yet you need to feel it to heal it. You have to get that out. You can't suppress those things. Um, regardless of how you feel about, uh, you have feelings about your feelings. There's just feelings all over the place. There are many ways people feel hope. And there are many ways people need to feel in the aftermath of trauma. And again, we've moralized a lot of these responses. And I, that has only compounded trauma for people. Alexiana, you have walked us through a lot of difficult topics today and have helped us to read Hebrew Bible better or mm -hmm. at least with a more trauma-informed lens mm -hmm. and have also um, introduced us to some ways of being in the world. You even led us through grounding. Mm -hmm. um, so really thankful to have had you here and uh, really appreciate all of your insights. So thank you so much for joining us. No, thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.